Production support for Noon Edition comes from Smithville. Fiber internet, streaming TV, home security, and automation in southern Indiana. More information at smithville.com. And from Bloomington Health Foundation, providing financial support to the community for 55 years, promoting healthier lives and the advancement of future health care in our region, working together for a healthier tomorrow. More at bloomhf.org. And from Estate and Downsizing Specialists, LLC, offering complete turnkey service for estate and downsizing clients, from initial consultation through home cleanout to final real estate and personal property sales. More at edsindiana.com. Welcome to Noon Edition on WFIU. I'm your host, Bob Zaltzberg, along with co-host Lori McRobbie. Today we're talking with guests about the state of the economy. There's lots to talk about, and we have three great guests with us today to do that. Denville Duncan is an economist and associate professor at the O'Neill School of Public and Environmental Affairs at IU. Phil Schumann is director of financial literacy at Indiana University, and Andrew Butters is assistant professor in the business uh, in business economics and public policy department at the Kelly School of Business. You can join us on the program by calling 812-855-0811 or toll free at 877-285-9348. You can also send your questions to news at indianapublicmedia.org and you can follow us on Twitter at Noon Edition. Well, Phil, Andrew, and Denville, thank you all for coming back. We've had some conversations in the not-too-distant past about various economic issues. And um, Denville, I want to start with you. I mean, one of the, the newer things on the horizon, I guess it's new, is a possible government shutdown coming at the end of the month. Um, what, can, what can we make of this in terms of what might happen? And you know, I think we talked last time you were here, we were talking about, you know, the debt ceiling and right. that possible issue. So just try to put this in perspective for us. Yeah, so thank you for inviting me again. Um, and it's really interesting to be back talking about the government shutdown after we had a conversation about the debt ceiling. Uh, I think for me, one thing that is very clear is that out of that debt ceiling debate, we had really just one success, and that was the fact that the ceiling went up. The other parts of it, including the cap and expenditures, do not seem to be binding in any way because now we're having a conversation again about uh, a possible shutdown. Um, now, if the government were to shut down, I suspect that we would have, you know, it would have important implications at the individual level. So to the extent that workers are furloughed, for example, um, it would also have some impacts on the ability of the government to effectively carry out some of, it, some of its duties. So we know that some services will continue to be performed, so essential services, so some parts of the military, for example, will continue. Um, but then there are other programs that will effectively stop until they are authorized to spend. Um, and so those programs would definitely have an effect on the people who benefit from them. At the macro level, though, I'm, it's not clear to me that we would see, you know, like, big macroeconomic effects. Uh, the extent to which that would happen, I suspect, would depend on how long the shutdown lasts. So if we're talking about an extra week to figure things out, then probably nothing will, nothing material will manifest at the macroeconomic level. Uh, but if this were to be drawn out over the course of a month, into two months, three months, you know, then it would become more problematic. Um, and so those are kind of my initial thoughts. On the politics, if you want to get into it, it clearly is a signal that the budgetary process isn't working. Um, and I remember the last time I was here, we don't, I said we don't have a federal budget process. I mean, we have something on paper, but we don't really use it. And we basically default to a continuing resolution. And so maybe the second observation from my perspective is the fact that we're now entering an era where the continuing resolution itself seems to be losing steam. One could rely on a CR bill, and now we're seeing even the CR bill seems to be dead on arrival. So those are just some initial thoughts, and it, it doesn't you know, kind of bode well for the politics of budgeting in the U.S., at least at the federal level. Andrew, any reaction to all of that? 
Uh, no, no I, so I thought that was a really nice uh, summary of kind of where we're at right now. And, you know, hopefully uh, the optimistic viewpoint of this would be that, um, you know, this is a little bit of brinksmanship sort of happening right now in the interim and that there's a, you know, re resolution um, where sort of the extreme downside version of, of what was just described uh, can be avoided. I, you know, I just have to ask this sort of macro question. I mean, wouldn't we be maybe better off on the budget system if we actually had e economists running the government <laughs> instead of politicians? I mean, it just seems like we get to these places. We have multiple shows on it. Um, Denville, you mentioned that the CR process now seems to be broken and we don't have a budget process. I mean, is there any uh, optimism on the, on the horizon? <laughs> I mean, for me, I think it's it's difficult. I, you know, last time I said this, and I, I maintain this position that budgeting is inherently political, right? You are trying to envision a future, and people can reasonably disagree on what that future should look like, and your vision for the future kind of dictates the types of programs you want to fund and the level at which you want to fund them, and so it's not immediately clear that, you know technocrats, if we expand beyond economists, <laughs> I want to put economists <laughs> under the bus here, but, but if we think it's not clear that you want technocrats to just kind of say, this is what we're going to do, because in a sense, people vote for their leaders, and those leaders are supposed to be somewhat reflective of the preferences of the people who vote for them. So I personally am not in favor of, you know, separating the politics from the budgeting, because to me, those are kind of a things that need to be together. Mm -hmm. uh, I would, though, like to see more effort uh, put into being good faith debaters or negotiators over the direction. Like, it can't be my way or your way. It has to be our way. And if you think that is impossible to achieve, then I guess there is no hope. But you know, if you think that at some level politicians can come together and realize that I don't get to run the country strictly based on my preference because I represent roughly, roughly speaking, one half of the people. And so it can't just be what one half of the people want. What about the other half? You know, so I think that's the ideal. And I, I personally am not so much in preference of, uh, you know, separating that piece of it from the actual spending decisions. No, no one listens to economists anyway. So. <laughs> <laughs> Bill, optimism from you. you. You work a lot with younger people today. Are they? How are they being affected? How do they look at this whole process? I mean, from the government, shut, government shutdown perspective, I don't think there's a whole lot of conversation on it. Like, we haven't seen a whole lot of students talk about the government shutdown piece. I think from our office perspective, like our job is to try and educate students about what this means. Um, and so we're trying to provide a little bit of perspective there. But there's not a there's not a lack of optimism. It's just like, why is this happening? And I think it's it, it's sort of, Denville put it perfectly in a way. It's like budgeting is a political process. And just hearing that, it's sort of put in perspective. Like when we talk to people about like their household finances and stuff like that, when you're having two different people have a conversation about their own finances, it's political there too, because it's two people having like this conversation about what they think is more important at that point. And there's going to be conflict in it. And so the question is, you know, and this is where the, I think the lack of optimism on my end is like, we just don't have a process at the moment where people have figured out how to have like constructive conversations about the budgeting and about how we're going to make sure that everybody's pushing forward together as opposed to, well, I want this and I want this. And it just causes people to butt heads. Yeah. Well, so maybe we can also talk about some other aspects of the uh, there's so many things going on uh, with the economy right now but but sticking with the effects on on young people there's uh, student debt and that's been a story we've we've talked about before yep. um, it, whether it's for the the current state of the, the certain uh, current political state or the government shutdown how is that going to affect things like student loan payments and their ability to continue to make uh, to make those and to and to get student loans if they need them for school. So there shouldn't be any effect whatsoever on people with their ability to get student loans. 
there also won't be any effect on people having to pay back their student loans. You know, it's, this is a very weird time. The government potentially might shut down. And now all of a sudden, for the first time in three and a half years, student or, you know, recent graduates and people who graduated well before are going to have to start repaying on their student loans. And there isn't going to be any shutdown of that. Like that is continuing, you know, or that's going to start back up beginning October 1st. Um, and it's going to be interesting to see how people navigate that. You know, we're talking about all these different economical challenges that are ha- that seem to be happening at the exact same time. Here's another one that we've been talking about for months, where all of a sudden people's households, uh, their household finances are going to be impacted because now all of a sudden some of their discretionary income, if they happen to have discretionary income, is about to go away because it's going to start going back towards paying off these student loans. Yeah, yeah. Well, and then there's. Inflation, which has been a constant topic, obviously, well, really since the pandemic, of course, and we know what was going on there, and it's certainly been coming down. Um, but again, maybe tying this back, uh, I, I, it's just a general question of whether the government shut down or any of the other things going on. We'll talk about the auto strike too. Uh, but with respect to inflation, Andrew, maybe you can speak to where we are with that, and and I, I think probably does the government shutdown or anything going on there um, affect our ability to to manage that as the Fed has been trying to do? Right. Yeah. So the, and the Fed actually, you know, just uh, had a meeting this week, and right. you know, basically, um, I think mostly uh, what was well anticipated sort of had a pause in the sense that um, they c- kept rates steady. Um, but interestingly, actually, in that <clears throat> same meeting, they you know they made it very clear that you know another another increase uh, is very much on the table and um, you know could be something that markets should start anticipating um, between now and, and the end of the year. And, and again, that those efforts are, as you brought up, um, very much addressing or trying to address uh, the inflation challenges that we're that we've been seeing. So you know right now um, we have a have a rate at three point seven. Um, that's still well above um, the target of, of a two percent. I know there's been some debate of whether or not uh, that should be moved or not. I'm not going <laughs> to not going to weigh in on that. I'm going to stick with my two percent. Um, and so that so it's so it's too high. So um, you know the Fed is doing what they can do. As you mentioned, the government shutdown is coming at a time where we are facing a lot of inflation challenges. I don't see that as being uh, going to contribute positively or negatively. Obviously, <clears throat> as was already described, you know, there are going to be very individual and sort of specific impacts of the people that are going to potentially be furloughed or services that are not going to be provided. Um, but the inflation problem right now is, I think, uh, much broader and much more systematic. And in fact, perhaps much more systematic than people um, originally gave it credit for. So uh, I, I don't see uh, the government shutdown specifically impacting it. But again, it's just another added challenge of, of the, what the economy is going through right now, which is obviously, again, still very much in some turmoil. Just a little follow-up there. This is, and we, we do want to get into the, um, a lot of other issues around uh, the labor market and so forth, but I'm just one of the things that, of course, is driving inflation is consumer demand. And it, it's, I suppose, interesting to speculate whether the government shutdown, which is going to lay off federal workers, the strikes that are reducing the amount of money that auto workers have, are those large enough numbers to start affecting consumer consumerism, if you will, the rate of consumer demand? So I think, I guess my first point on it, so it's a great question. Um, I think one thing that has actually probably maybe even surprised many economists is just the immense resiliency of of the consumer. Um, So basically, you know, I don't, I think it was almost exactly a year ago uh, when, when we were talking about the economy last, or when I was talking with you about the economy last, and it was the most anticipated recession that we were ever going to see was, was, was right upon us. Everyone and their mother was saying, Oh, we're in a recession. It's going to happen. It's going to happen. It's going to happen. Never happened. Um, and I think a large amount of why it didn't happen is through the strength of what we've seen as to be a very resilient consumer. Now, as you mentioned, um, these events that we're talking about right now have put some immense strains on the consumer. And on top of that, um, again, government shutdown, um, other uh, student loan payments, all of these are going to, again, continue to squeeze them. And so, yes, at some point, that might break the consumer. And then there's obviously some very serious concerns as to what that would mean for the economy. But 
optimistic view. <laughs> um, very, very strong so far. And again, it, to the extent that that continues, and that's also very much being supported by the strong labor market. So again, we've got a nice little chart here. I know that no one can see on the radio, but basically unemployment, record lows, right? So if you want a job, if you want a job right now, and I, I know strikes and, and government shutdown, but if you want a job right now, you can get one. And so that is very much supporting um, what we're seeing here on the, on the consumer side. I want to give our contact information if you want to call us with a question or a comment about what's happening with the economy. You can call us at 812-855-0811 or toll free at 877-285-9348. You can also send your questions to news at indianapublicmedia.org or you can send them to us on Twitter at Noon Edition. We've had some questions sent to us about um, – really some investment strategies more or less. So I'm going to turn to Phil, who is the the guy who um, knows about uh, financial literacy. Mm -hmm. And he talks with students a lot. Uh, the first question that this person asks is, these are the highest interest rates many young people have ever seen. So how does that change uh, an investment strategy maybe for a young person? Or how does that change how you talk to the people you talk to about about their financial situation. Yeah. And so the first thing I'll say here is just so I put it out there because I know this is a weird thing to say. But my dad is probably listening in somewhere and he's a licensed financial advisor. I'm not. And so I want to make sure that like I'm not a licensed financial advisor, so I can't give specific financial advice. So just want to make sure I throw that out there. Um, you know, when we're talking to younger people about what they want to do in terms of, um, you know, in, investing or saving or paying off debt, like these different things, you know, there is a mathematical answer to these things. And there always will be a mathematical answer when interest rates are higher. Certainly right now, if you go to a bank, you open up a, a we'll just say even a CD. Those CD rates right now are higher than they've ever been in quite some time. You know, the markets still, can, you know, continue to go up and down as they always do. So when we talk to students about like, you know, reasonable rate of return, we're looking at like 8%, something along those lines, just to say like, that's what you're looking for over the course of time. For us, it's less about the math, though. We talk more about the like the stress behind it. So, you know, you've got two competing interests, especially for students who are, you know, getting ready to graduate, and they have, you know, both student loans, and the time where it's more important than their life than ever to start saving for retirement. And those, you know, they have a limited number of dollars, and they have to figure out, okay, which way am I going to go? And the answer that we give to them is, yes, there's a mathematical answer, but there's more of a behavior answer. There's more of a psychological answer. And that answer is, what's going to keep you up at night? And so if they say, my ability to not save for my retirement, I need to save for my retirement earlier, then what we tell them to do is, well, just make sure you're covering the minimums on your debts and then throw any extra money you have toward retirement. Vice versa, like if they say, hey, you know, it's my student debt that's keeping me up at night or my credit card debt that's keeping me up at night, what should I do? Again, there's a mathematical answer, but what we would tell them from a wellness standpoint, from a mental health standpoint, focus on paying off that debt first. You know, do what you can on the retirement side of things, but do what's ever going to put you in a better position just mentally and uh, holistically overall. Okay. And there's a follow-up question about, about CDs. You really addressed it, and that is that, you know, a lot of over the last, I don't know, decade or more, people talked about how CDs aren't a good investment, stocks, bonds, real estate, those things are good investments, CDs are getting a higher rate now. So that's yep. when you would go that, that I mean, way, right? They're getting a higher rate. There will still be people that say that don't do it or do it or, or whatever you want to say. For me, it's if you want to do it, if you're comfortable with that, especially because CDs tend to be low level of risk if you're a person that has a low risk tolerance, great, go for it. The more important thing on my end is like, are you comfortable with that amount of money being trapped more or less for two years or three years or how long that period of time it is before it matures? If you're not, like if you're putting that money up there at the expense of having a ready-to-go emergency fund or whatever, then don't do it. It's just if you have that extra money that you don't need, you can look at that as sort of a strategy to use to help build wealth. Okay. And if you're comfortable answering this, this is another another question. <laughs> we'll find out. Yeah, right. <laughs> I know you'll tell me if you're not. Um, and this, you know, you're talking about locking up CDs. This question is, it, what's the difference between a CD and a high-yield savings account? I mean – I mean, it's it's more. I'm going to say it's almost the same thing in a way, and this might be oversimplifying it, but to extent, like it's just you know, it depends on the interest rate. High yield savings account, you know, depending on how the markets are doing, one might have a higher interest rate than the other. The other one might not. It's Is there just flexibility. 
Is that an issue? I mean, there's there's flexibility. The CD has less flexibility because it's going to be tied to like it's going to be tied to a certain period of time before it matures. And if you pull that money out before it matures, then you're going to have to pay some sort of penalty associated with it. Okay. So, and you know, if you had, I guess, if you have two interest rates, in there, or if you have a CD and you've got a high yield savings account that have the same interest rate. I'd probably go high yield because at that point, like it's not tied or you're not tethered to it. You don't have to pay a penalty if you take that money out. Okay, thank you. We'll yep. send we'll send your dad's phone number. Throw <laughs> <laughs> some business Lori. this way. Yeah. Well, I yeah, I it, just this talk of of high yield savings accounts and and um, CDs and so forth. This is a uh, probably a very quick question to answer, but one of the other topics we talked about. Uh, I think when maybe all three of you were on, or certainly a few of you were, was the banking crisis, the the fragile state of certain banks. Are we through that at this point? We haven't heard. There hasn't been much in the news about bank uh, runs on banks or banks bank failure. Sorry, um, but is that still? Are there still some weaknesses there, Andrew? Uh, so, so I mean, I think uh, as as you mentioned, you know, it's become less of a uh, topic in the popular press. Uh, I think the thing that everyone should probably be keeping in mind, and this I think <clears throat> transcends actually a lot of the topics that we've been discussing thus far, is that um, you know we're in a very, very different interest rate environment now than we've been basically in the last, for the most part, 20 years. So that means that there are some individuals and some firms and some households and some businesses that like literally have not existed with this kind of interest rate environment. And so that's going to potentially change the sort of um, overall sort of both business strategy that's going to be successful as well as kind of just simply the the budget in terms of expenses and, and revenues. And so, you know, again, I think for the most part, based off of what was done following the crisis, um, that, you know, the banks are relatively solid and I wouldn't expect there to be kind of another crisis to happen between now and say the end of the year. Um, but with that said, um, you know, the cost of borrowing has changed dramatically. And so yeah. what that means is that basically a lot of things that made it, might have been the case as early as 2018 or 2017 are just not, the, not that mm-hmm. way anymore. Can so. I follow up on that real quickly? Because we've got another question. that says, how are the interest rates affecting the housing market? So uh, people selling less? <laughs> what? Yeah, uh, yeah. No, no, it's a, it's a great question. So, um, I mean, I know... Uh, so again, I was I was on the side I was on the side of optimism uh, in thinking that we weren't going to end up in a recession, and so far I've I've looked okay on that one. Um, but for people in the housing sector, that's certainly not been the case. So that that has certainly slowed down quite dramatically since the um, since the surge actually uh, kind of coming out of the pandemic um, recession. And so yeah, we're seeing both a slowdown in terms of inventory as well as demand, right? Basically, the interest rates being as high as they are now basically means if you want to buy a home right now, you're probably looking at a 7% interest rate, full stop. You're not going to get anything lower than that. And what that also has done is dramatically changed the calculus for if I'm in a home, but maybe want to move, what is that going to mean for me? And so you've seen a lot of a slowdown in just inventory in terms of people being willing to sell their house. Why? Because they don't want to give up their 3% interest rate. And so you've seen now kind of on both sides. And so that's really the interesting part, I think, coming from an economist is that we're seeing both demand and supply um, moving around quite a bit in that market. Um, and so, so yeah, there's been definitely uh, an impact there that's that's been pretty significant. Yeah. Well, we keep mentioning the um, uh, auto strike, <laughs> auto worker strike. And so we should probably dive into that a bit. And uh, Denville, what, uh, where, where, where do you see this? How do you see this playing out right now? You've got some expertise in this area, and where are we, where are we headed? I have to be honest. I don't know. <laughs> Good answer. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 are, are you surprised by the um, the demands or the degree to which the unions are really sticking? To yeah. their demands? So the sticking to the demand and the strategy of like, you know, basically you're you're going to stop working or at least pause working for everyone at the same time. It's not just Ford, it's not just GM, it's it's everybody. That's that part of it is surprising to me. Um, I don't know if it's the same for everyone else, but I yeah. I never expected this as a as a kind of strategy. I, you know, I was, I was kind of hoping, if at least from a game theory standpoint, you know, strategy where you try to pit one against the other. 
so in the sense that if I strike over here, I'm impacting this one. These two, you know, they kind of fill the slack. I've hurt everyone equally. It's from a game theory standpoint, I kind of was a little bit uh, surprised by that piece of it. Uh, but I don't know where it ends, to be honest. Yeah, I, and I would follow up and just ask it, for all of you, if, have we hit a point where labor is just uh, because of inflation, because salaries are, are not going up as fast as costs are in a lot of ways, have we hit a place where labor is going to just be more demanding? And this is the first step in that. Uh, un unemployment record low, uh, really tight labor market. Yeah. Um, and you mentioned uh, this year, for the first time in a long time, real incomes did not go up. Real incomes did not go up. They fell dramatically. So yeah, so again, this is kind of where the rubber is going to hit the road. Um, you've got really tight labor market um, and real disposable income falling. And so there's going to be something that they will need to change. <laughs> yeah, no, as, as I was going to say, coming out of the pandemic, my sense, and I, I don't have any empirical evidence to support this, but my sense is, is that the mindset of the worker changed after the pandemic. Like people start, I, my sense is just talking to uh, various individuals that workers, you know, kind of realize that there is probably more to life than just work. And so you'll see all these job openings, <clears throat> like we have the data here on unemployment rates. If you look at the job openings, that's you know, the other direction. It's like there are more jobs than there are people to fill the jobs. And that empowers the worker. And if you combine that with whatever shock workers experienced coming out of the pandemic, you get increased demand, right? I mean, it's, I could quit this job and go to another job. So I, I've kind of reduced the power of the employer, increased the power of the worker. So my sense is that you will see more of this, whether it's organized through uh, unions or just a worker individually deciding, I don't like this, I'm gonna take another job, which has happened. Um, mm -hmm. I remember my, I've talked to you know people self-employed running businesses and just how difficult it is for them to attract workers, not only attract, but to keep uh, workers and those aren't uni unionized types of positions. You know, that's just I'm running a business and I try to employ a couple of workers. And so if it's ha it's happening at that micro level, and then you have kind of a unionization component to it, it's 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 not clear to me that it's going to stop anytime soon. I'd love to see some empirical work on you know kind of whether or not what I'm inferring is actually more systematic across the labor market that there is in fact this change in the perception of work and mm -hmm. what I should take and not take from my employer and that kind of thing. Yeah, there, I think there's certainly a, seems like a shift in the perception of unions because unions were, have, um, you know, certainly there was a period um, recently for, for quite some years where unions sort of fell out of favor. I mean, if you really compare historically to labor movements and so forth, where, where unions came from and the centrality they had in in communities and in, and in political life, and then that really dipped, and now it seems to be coming back politically and just, you know, in general, unions are considered to be more of a path and more of a path for, you know, we've seen here at IU with graduate yep. students being more willing so maybe to, one to more, unionize. I'm sorry, maybe one more point on this. So there is what I am calling this change in mindset of the worker, which I don't know if it's true or not. Uh, but I think another thing that's happening in the labor market that is probably, and again, I don't know if this is true, but I wonder if it's one of the reasons for the, the resurgence of uh, unions is just technological change. Mm -hmm. And specifically in the example you're talking about, the auto industry, it's the innovation in electric vehicles, right? So an electric vehicle is fundamentally different from an internal combustion engine, like orders of magnitude difference in the number of parts that you need, for example. So the supply chain is just not as big. And so that has, if we were to shift in a significant way toward electric vehicles, that would have important implications for just the number of workers that you need. So there's a real threat to the workforce in that specific industry. And if you go beyond this kind of mechanical change in technology where you're going from an internal combustion engine to an electric, uh, electric vehicle with just a, an electric motor, and then think about artificial intelligence, that's not the subject here, but that's another one, right? So you see the Writers Guild 
for Hollywood. Well, that's another big technological change that has real implications for the number of workers you need. And so those people who are working to the extent that you know you care about your job and you want to work, uh, it kind of revitalizes the need for organized protection from these technological changes. Uh, an economist, you know, is like the Luddite fallacy is like a big thing, right? You have this big technological change. It has implications for labor, and then people coalesce and try to protect their jobs. Uh, and that seems to be partly happening here yeah. again. Yeah, yeah, I was, yeah. Yeah, this might be just the most basic of all e economic questions, but it, uh, my, my, um, my, my theory or my thoughts are that profits are still continuing to rise, right? Corporate profits are rising and salaries aren't. And so, you know, you've got, you've, you've got this tension, this conflict how how do we you know how do we get that back into some sort of balance or was it has it ever been in balance? I mean, we were we were talking a little bit this, about this right before we started. We're just like there's just this weird consumer confidence that continues to be there in spite of all I'd say in spite of a lot of evidence that it might not or it shouldn't be that way. At some point, that's going to come to a head, and it, it could be the student loans, right? Like this lack of disposable income or the less disposable income. That's that could do it. You know, but I look at, I was looking at a chart before, before we started looking at the average credit scores of, of Americans, and it continues to go up. And I don't think that's, that's, a, that's not a coincidence or anything along those lines. I think what's happening in some respects is it's now easier for people to borrow money. Whatever that, you know, what that metric, that credit score, what it does is it's not an indication of financial health. It's an indicating of borrowing health. Mm -hmm. And lenders mm -hmm. are looking to more Americans, I guess, in this case, to say, like, hey, we're willing to give you more money if you want to spend your money on things. And so I think that's sort of feeding all of this, too, where now people, you know, they may not necessarily have, like, the income to do something, but they have the borrowing capacity to do something. So they're able to spend money on that. I think at some point that's got to come to a head as well because people are going to realize we can't continue to borrow money and it might be the interest rates that sort of help do that. They just say like we're not going to be able to borrow money anymore and that could cause you know, things to slow down because people aren't going to be spending money that they don't have or that they're borrowing on these you know, whatever products they're buying are. Well, I mean our last conversation, Denville, when you were here about the debt ceiling, I mean you know, debt can't go on forever. It doesn't. Maybe it can the federal government, but I, I think you know with individuals, if you you do have a higher credit score, so you can get somebody to loan you some money, but the interest rate is higher, so you're building more debt. I mean, it sounds like what you're saying is that can't really go on forever with individuals. I mean, you'd think it wouldn't, but it, I, I will say, from my perspective, it's gone on longer than I thought it would at this point. Because we, like, I mean, the word recession has been thrown around so much over the course of the last year, year and a half, and yet we continue to defy the odds or defy the opinions, and we're still not in a recession, which is great. But I worry that the longer that it goes on, the longer that we, it doesn't happen, you know, the bigger the collapse might be when that does happen. Um, just yeah. to uh, follow up on that and, and sort of uh, uh, comment on the on kind of a lot of the things that now have just been brought up. So I think one taking a positive spin, taking a positive swing at um, kind of the technological changes, and you brought up profits and kind of the success or, or lack thereof of how those profits have been distributed throughout the economy. Um, I think one thing that's important to note is you know technology. Technological advancement is a good thing at the end of the day. You know, we basically have kind of all walking around in our pocket now, like it's something that, you know, 25, 30 years ago would have cost not only a lot much more money, but also would have been, you know, very, very difficult to even comprehend what we can do now um, on our phones. And on top of that, that actually leads to labor being more productive. And so, yes, like there might be now less jobs maybe for that 
electrical ve- electric vehicle manufacturing plant, but it's also the case that the people in those jobs and the people in those plants are actually a lot, lot more productive. And so to the extent that any amount of that more productivity um, is sort of reaped or is, you know, flowing back to um, the employee um, in terms of real income, you know, th- those are all good things. And obviously then, you know, in terms of, we're, I'll totally sidestep the issue of like the transition in terms of, um, you know, getting more renewable um, source energy into both homes, vehicles, transportation, what have you. But um, again, I think that's an important piece to this um, story as well in terms of just thinking about long run growth for the economy and for households as well. Yeah, I, I agree. It's uh, the transition is always the tough part. But yeah, like we shouldn't stop technology because of the effect it might have on jobs. We should figure a way to handle the transition to kind of cushion people. And then maybe the other point is wages have increased. They just haven't increased you know, as fast as prices have been going up, hence the decline in real income. So, I mean, if you look at just wages of you know, pretty much any industry, you see that wages have gone up much faster than they have historically. But still, prices have been moving so fast that we, you, know, you still end up with people being left in the cold. And when you consider the purchasing power of that, of that wage is, is just not keeping up with inflation. Yeah, that's where I think the economists also get it. So, like, just double down on that last point because, it's like, as economists, we tend to get the uh, get the gains from trade right. Um, it's the unfortunate reality of then, yeah. is, you know, there are some winners and some losers, and again, the pie has gotten bigger. But we just need to make sure that um, the transition—it's it's the transition part—that's going to be yeah. kind of the difficult one, and we need to make sure that we. Phil, Phil wants to join in, but I oh. want to ask you, Andrew. So. Uh, this again may be a simple question: Who are the winners and who are the losers? <laughs> <laughs> well, well, I, well, so so the un, the unfortunate one is that the consumers are often very much distributed throughout the entire economy and like are not a coalesced um, lobbying force. It's like the consumers, like right? We all want electric vehicles, or we all want a transition, or what have you, and we want it cheap. We want it to be able to afford it, and so those are the winners for sure. Um, the losers, if you are an expert in making internal combustion engines and you are a manufacturing employee in one of these plants that will or in the near term or not near term be transitioned out of um, employment in that industry, that that for sure is going to affect you. That's going to, that's going to be a very localized effect that hopefully we can provide support for. But the point would be, yeah, I think it's broad-based winners and then very localized losers that end up you being have, the transition. You have to realize, I was in the newspaper industry, so <laughs> I understand this. <laughs> Go ahead, Phil. I mean, the, the only thing I was going to say is, like, you've got, you know, inflation is slowing. The, the, the rate that the economy is, you know, going up or whatever you would say, like, inflation is slowing. The issue, though, is is that prices aren't going down. And so I think one of the things that's sort of interesting is like the expectations of what things cost now. We're still sort of adjusting to that new normal. You know, if, it, if we got to the point where like inflation is, you know, going up or down is, is just 0%, those prices that we have, they're not decreasing. They're not going to go back to what they originally were. Like the cost of eggs or milk or whatever you want to say, those are what the cost of those things are now. And again, like I go, keep, I keep going back to discretionary income because, you know, again, my mind is just around student loans all the time. It's going to be interesting because at this point in time, when people have that discretionary income, they can afford those things in spite of those price increases. But when you don't have as much discretionary income and you have to pay the price on these things that have now gone up significantly, like it's going to create a pretty big mind shift and cause a lot of problems for people. Well, and one of the speaking of losers, of course, is are people who are already in economic uh, straits, if you will. Um, and and I want to bring this a little bit back to the to the government shutdown in the sense, uh, Denzel, you you mentioned at the beginning that uh, they'll they'll be in terms of government benefits that's going to affect certain populations. And I'm thinking here about our social safety net programs, some of which affect children. We've, we've seen a, a huge change in the last few years in terms of the number of children being lifted out of poverty. Are we at risk of increasing the number of people who fall below the poverty line and specifically uh, children uh, being at more risk for living in poverty? Because From, both of, I, I guess I'm kind of mixing things together here, but one would be the government shutdown having an effect on that, but also just you know, the general state of, of inflation and the economy also then creating more poverty. 
Yeah, so the, the shutdown itself, I wouldn't think would increase the number of people who are in poverty. It would definitely affect the services provided to that population. And again, the magnitude of that effect then depends on the duration of the shutdown, mm-hmm. right? So if a, if a particular agency is not able to function, then it means all of the services they provide get shut down. And one of those might be uh, uh, programs that I think like school lunch programs, for example, right. uh, might be affected. And so those students who depend on it will be affected for the duration of the shutdown, but it's not that the shutdown is causing them to become poor, if you just kind of make the distinction there. Um, uh, in terms of just the interest rate environment, I don't know. It's, um, you know, so you you do have the numbers that we're looking at right now would say no. I mean, prices are going up, yes. Wages are increasing, not as fast, but the unemployment rate is low. The number of job openings exceed the number of people that are available to work. And all of that kind of suggests that you should still see people finding employment and uh, you know being able to kind of just move on. Um, it is the case, and I like the point that was raised just now, that you know, we have to distinguish between the change in price and the price level. So the price levels are what they are, and as long as the change in price is positive, those price levels will rise. They're not ever going to go back down you know, unless you have deflation um, or if you know, there's some change in aggregate demand supply that kind of pushes prices down. But the price level is the price level. And so if wages aren't keeping up, so that those who do get the jobs can buy the things they need to buy, then you still will have some people who are going to be on the short end of the stick, so to speak. Um, so yeah, so the, the shutdown, I don't see that increasing the number of people in poverty. It will certainly affect the services that they get. Um, and then the general economic condition, unless we go into a recession, which I'm going to take your positive spin, hope <laughs> oh, that maybe, maybe it doesn't happen, then... It's, it's not so clear to me that you will be seeing people moving mm-hmm. into poverty, per se. Uh, but certainly it will remain hard for a while yes. and, you know, until, like, price level, price change becomes more stable and, uh, you know, people can, you know, kind of adjust to the new norm mm-hmm. of what mm-hmm. it means to buy groceries. Yeah. yeah, That was uh, Denville Duncan, who's an economist with the uh, O'Neill School of Public and Environmental Affairs. We also have Phil Schumann with us, Director of Financial Literacy at IU, and Andrew Butters, Assistant Professor in the Business, Economics, and Public Policy Department at the Kelly School of Business. So we only have about 10 minutes to go, but if you have a question for any of them, you can send it to news at indianapublicmedia.org. And or you can call in 812-855-0811 or toll free at 877-285-9348. Our producer will take your question. We probably can't get you on the air at this late date. I want to ask about uh, historical perspective because in the 70s, 80s, inflation was higher than it is now. What were the real impacts then on, you know, just on the on everyday Americans. I mean, what, how, do, how, how, are, how is today different from, from back then? What can we learn from when interest rates were going up into the teens? And Andrew? Uh, so, well, I guess, so great question. A <laughs> um, lot to unpack there, so I'll try to do it uh, succinctly. So I guess the first point to the question that you raised is that we have a lot of people uh, myself included, uh, that don't know that, <laughs> don't ha- weren't, weren't living around when interest rates for a home or for a car or for whatever were in those numbers. Uh, and so, you know, we've got kind of a lot to learn, so to speak. Um, but then on top of that, uh, I think one thing that uh, was a lesson learned from the, that experience was that basically it's really, really important that we nip this in the bud now. Um, it was the oh, we thought we had it solved. Oh, it turned out we didn't. And then it came back and reared its ugly head a lot more aggressively that I think for sure, at least in terms of monetary policy and the economists at, say, like the Federal Reserve, um, banks and the board, um, that, that's what they learned. And so I think what you've seen, both in terms of how they talk about this, what they've done in the last uh, 12 months, what they say they are willing to continue to do <laughs> over the next 12 months, um, is that they're going to get it to two, and until they're confident it's going to be at two, uh, don't expect the interest rates to go down. Mm-hmm. Okay. 
Yeah, for those who don't know, I mean, back in those days, you you could go in and get a, a CD for 17%. Right. Um, that, you're getting a lot of money there, but if you went and tried to get a mortgage, it was 17%. Right. Yeah. So. I think I paid, I paid 9% <laughs> on a mortgage in 1980. Uh, my, the house was $70,000. <laughs> and that same house is now going for 400000 um, But, yeah, so a lot of things have changed. But I, uh, that, is, that is the environment, actually, I grew up in. I came into in the, in the early 70s and 80s into a very high interest rate, uh, high inflation uh, high gas costs, a lot of unrest in the auto uh, labor market, um, and you know somehow we we got through it. And again, <laughs> but I think this is a really important point. Are there what you know what other lessons can we learn from how we fixed that or got out of it? I mean, the funny thing I would say is I'm not like I don't know how many lessons you can take from that because the like the way our economy works now is so much different. Because if you think back in the 70s and 80s, like Sure, interest rates are high. You're paying for mortgages. But at the same time, like, you know, for a lot of people, pensions were more common. So how you were funding your retirement was a completely different thing mm-hmm. in a different system. It was more employer-reliant as opposed to self-reliant. Now, all of a sudden, you've got people who are facing higher interest rates, and they're trying to figure out how we're going to afford retirement at the exact same time. That's really hard. We also have a very different model in terms of how people consume things. We're now much more a subscription-based economy. There are more things that everybody has to have. I mean, we mentioned the phone earlier today. That was not a thing that existed 30, 40 years ago where you're just paying for that over the course of time. And so, you know, it's hard because people have more expenses now on a monthly basis than they did back in the 70s and 80s. And so how does that play a role into this? And, And again, like there are things you could probably take away from that period of time that would help us now but I think things are so vastly different that it might be hard to make a really good comparison or apples to apples comparison to say, like, this is what we need to do in order to fix the current situation. Right. Fair enough. Denbo? Yeah. So for me, it's, you know, everything that has been said so far. But for me, I kind of take one of the things that I suspect needs to happen. And the longer this goes on, the more people will probably need to adjust to this new normal is to kind of think of debt at least the way I think of it, is I am borrowing from my future self. And when interest rates are very high, the cost of you know, connecting with my future self and saying, hey, Denville of 2030, I need to borrow $800,000 to buy a house, in a low interest rate environment, that's very easy to do. And many of us kind of grew up in an environment where that was just normal. You didn't even think about it. But then obviously other people grew up in an era where that decision was like you really had to think if you're going to pay 17% for a mortgage, that's a very high rate at which you will borrow from your future self. And so as we transition into this new state, to the extent that we continue there for a long time, I think that's one of the adjustments that needs to take place is to say, well, every time I go to a bank and borrow money, I'm not borrowing from the bank, I'm borrowing from some future version mm-hmm. of myself. And how much do I want to shift or how much do I want to borrow from that future version of Denville or, you know, um, so until we get there, you know, people are going to see these sticker price and then start, you know, kind of complain. But really, you're you're accessing yourself. It's like time travel with money, and the ticket <laughs> is is the interest rate. I mean, the the cost of the ticket is the interest rate. So yeah. you take fewer trips as the price goes up. Yeah. Kind of the, Phil, that sounds like a great a great metaphor for talking to young people. <laughs> I mean, it, it's, it's so funny you're saying that because like we have a, one of our grad students is on the other side of the window back there listening and I hope he's taking notes on that because I'm like, that is a great way of framing this. Like, yeah, borrowing against your future self. I mean, we used, I want to use that narrative. The other narrative we talked about before is too, like debt is paying for your past which is sort of, it's the same thing, but it's also the exact, like a very different wording. It's like you're paying for the things that you've already done. And so in theory, what you want to try and figure out is how can you stop paying for the things that you already did and instead focus on paying the things for the things you want to do now and certainly paying for the things that you want to do later. Um, and it's just a, it's a long, hard conversation that's a t- you know, topic for another day, of course. <laughs> <laughs> we'll probably have an opportunity to do it. Um, just we, don't, we only have a few minutes to go. So, um, Denval, I'm going to start with you. I mean, what's, what, when you think of all these issues with the economy, the potential auto strike, the, where inflation is, what government's going is happening, and what's your biggest concern? What, what, what's the, the biggest hot button for you? For me, my... It's informed by my, my research area. Yeah. The biggest thing for me is just getting 
policymakers to a place where they can actually realize that, well, we are, we are not, it's not I, it's not you, it's, it's us, right? Um, and you're there to represent a diverse set of preferences and you can't just rule based on what you think should be the thing to do, like what you think is the right thing to do as well. Other people disagree with you and, and so you need to find a way to come to the middle. Um, because I think a lot of the problems on the federal side are self-inflicted problems, at least on the fiscal side of things. Um, and so that's the one, that's the thing I worry about the most, um, is this a world where policymakers can keep politics as part of the budget, but do it, can, do it in a way that we can actually move forward rather than just kind of stand still. All right, Andrew, hot button. Uh, so I'll take a positive spin. <laughs> uh, so I, but I, but I agree with everything that was just that was just said, and I very much feel that way as well. Um, but you know, uh, it's un, it's an uncertain time for sure. But you know, the economy has proven to be much stronger than I think a lot. Of, well, most economists gave it credit for. Um, now that's not to say that's going to continue, and that you know we're going to just be smooth sailing and have that soft landing that I know is sort of becoming now more and more brought up. Uh, but really, at the end of the day, I think you want to just be careful because you know at the, there's still a lot of uncertainty, and again, it's been proven to be much stronger than people gave it credit for. But it's also a good time to probably plan ahead and be ready for in the event that there is a downturn um, that you're ready for it. Okay, Phil. I mean, as is my job talking about student loans, you know, we've got the repayments that are starting up um, next week. You know, I, I think we're going to expect some turbulence with it, just as people sort of navigate that new normal of having to make those payments again. I will say, like, despite the fact that I think I said a couple of negative things during the show, I'm actually more optimistic about this, I think, than most people will be. I think there have been a lot of good conversations. I think there's been a lot of good tension on this to the point where I think people know what steps they need to take in order to get back on paying, uh, paying off their student loans. So I feel confident that, like, the amount of turbulence that we're going to face from an economical standpoint isn't going to be as high as I think some others might think. But it's still going to be interesting to see how all of that plays out over the course of the next few months to see how people are navigating, again, this new normal or back to what their original normal was as, uh, as it relates to paying off student loans. Okay. Thank you. We are out of time. A lot of thank yous today. Denville Duncan, Phil Schumann, Andrew Butters, thank you all for being here. Great conversation. Thank you to Lori McRobbie, my co-host, to Nathan Moore, our producer, and Mike Bashkash, our engineer. I'm Bob Salzberg. Thanks for listening. Support for Noon Edition comes from Smithville. Fiber internet, streaming TV, home security, and automation in southern Indiana. More information at smithville.com. And from Bloomington Health Foundation, providing financial support to the community for 55 years, promoting healthier lives and the advancement of future health care in our region, working together for a healthier tomorrow. More at bloomhf.org. And from Estate and Downsizing Specialists, LLC, offering complete turnkey service for estate and downsizing clients, from initial consultation through home cleanout to final real estate and personal property sales. More at edsindiana.com.